This episode is made possible by PwC. A robot may not be coming for your job, but competitors are coming for your market share. At PwC, we pair the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge. Reimagine operations from the cloud, fuel innovation with responsible AI, and detect risks before they become headlines. That's human-led and tech-powered. It's all part of the new equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. This is the smell of the leftover tuna fish sandwich you left in your lunchbox over the weekend in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, <sighs> smell the difference? Hefty Ultra Strong has Arm & Hammer with continuous odor control, so no matter what's inside your trash... Hmm. You can stay one step ahead of Stinky. And for bigger jobs, try the superior strength of hefty large black bags. Hey, this is not a test. This is rock and roll. This is the Rock and Roll History Show. I believe full coffee mug is the most important thing. It's the key to life. I believe so. I think everything branches off from that. Welcome to the Rock and Roll History Show here on HudsonRiverRadio.com. I'm Brian Horowitz, joined as always... By Captain Knowledge himself, the professor, the one who knows it all, Mr. Neil Richter over here. Hey, everybody. Long time no see. So we made it a year. We had the big celebration last night. That was a lot of fun. It happened to land on, on the perfect show with Mercedes and Jim, the party animals. It was great. Um, I got to give you the credit and and uh, Gail from Paranormally Yours. You two uh, took the lead on the celebration because I was just... I was stumbling to the finish line. <laughs> I was just happy we hey, made it. It had to be done. Well, and then it had uh, to be done. you guys pointed out the fact that we should probably celebrate it at least a little bit, and you were absolutely right. Plus, it was Mercedes' birthday last Sunday, and uh, and Uber fan Barbara's birthday as well. So it week. all tied in, and it was the, the the stars aligned, and it was a great time. You are absolutely correct. It was definitely a lot of fun. Uh, if you missed it. The podcast will be up tonight from the Silver Screen, last night's Silver Screen. It'll be up uh, about 7 o'clock tonight, probably closer to 8 o'clock. You can relive the madness. Absolutely. So, But on behalf of Neil Briscoe, the other Neil and I, uh, we want to thank everybody who's participated from before day one. Uh, we've had some great sponsors along the way. We've had uh, a lot of great people come through, and uh, it's been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun. Our whole goal was to make it a community radio station, to open up opportunities for people to come in, have new experiences, uh, especially internships. That Now we're getting some internships up and running. And, uh, you know, it's an opportunity you don't get very often, especially here in the New York City market, just because it's so commercialized and it's so expensive and so competitive. You're never going to get your foot in the door. So we want to do something a little different. And so far... We're here. <laughs> I got my foot in the door and I can't get it out. Right? You're <laughs> stuck. You're chained to the wall. You may not have realized that. Because uh, Neil Richter is the backbone of Hudson oh, River thank Radio. Thank Between the afternoon drive, jumping to the mornings when you had to, uh, board hopping the shows, teaching uh, new personnel how to run the board, how to do things for themselves, getting everybody up and running, uh, editing audio files, editing the podcast, throwing them up on the server, all the stuff. So Neil Richter, if I was wearing a hat, I would tip it. Thank you. If Thank I, you very much. If I was wearing a hat, the headphones would come popping off. Too, I usually so. do, too, but the headphones get in the way. True. True. So today on the Rock and Roll History Show, we're going to focus on civil rights, mm. mostly uh, in the 1950s and 1960s. So we're going to kick it off today with a song called Black and White, not black or white, not the Michael Jackson one. We're not going to touch that one. Black and White. It was written in 1954 by two guys, David Arkin and Earl Robinson. It was inspired by the United States Supreme Court decision of Brown versus Board of Education. If you think back to, what, 7th, 8th grade social studies? These are the ones you had to memorize. Brown versus, Brown versus Board of Education outlawed racial segregation in public schools. It overturned a prior case of Plessy versus Ferguson, which at the time stated that separate but equal facilities were considered legal. If that rings a bell. It's, it's that, mm. that, that balance between remembering history and having bad flashbacks of not doing well on tests, you know? <laughs> so it overturned Plessy v. Ferguson. Uh, Brown versus Board of Education established that separate could not, in fact, be equal. Black and White was first recorded by Pete Seeger back in 1956. We're going to play the original recording. Um, some of the lyrics, you can get it. Uh, let's see. The ink is black, the page is white. Together we learn to read and write, because now... Schools are desegregated. A child is black, a child is white. A whole world looks upon the sight. What a beautiful sight. 
Here's the, here's the one. And now a child can understand that this is the law of all the land, all the land, the world is black, the world is white, blah, blah, blah. It goes on. So great song, great topic. I thought we'd kick off with Pete Seeger, who is, of course, a Hudson Valley legend. We'll come back and talk about Pete after uh, checking out his recording here. All right. Back from 1956, Black and White, the legendary Pete Seeger. Oh, the ink is black, the page is white. Together we learn to read and write, to read and write. And now a child can understand This is the law of all the land All the land Oh, the ink is black The page is white Together we learn to read and write To read and write Their robes were black Their heads were white The schoolroom doors were closed so tight Were closed up tight Nine judges all set down their names To end the years and years of shame Years of shame Their robes were black Their heads were white Oh, the slate is black The chalk is white The words stand out so clear and bright So clear and bright and now at last we plainly see the alphabet of liberty, liberty. Oh, the slate the is black, black, the chalk, chalk is white. Together we learn to read and write, to read and write. Oh, a child is black or a child is white. The whole world looks upon the sight. What a beautiful sight. Oh, very well, the whole world knows This is the way that freedom grows Freedom grows Oh, a child is black or a child is white Oh, the world is black and the world is white It turns by day and turns by night It turns by night it turns so each and every one can take his station in the sun, in the sun. Oh, the ink is black, the page is white. Together we learn to read and write, to read and write. And now a child can understand this is the law of A beautiful song, clearly recorded before the days of auto-tune. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that was the first recording of Black and White, 1956. Now, of course, Pete Seeger is a legend here in the Hudson Valley, uh, primarily due to uh, Clearwater. The Clearwater is a replica of a, a sloop ship, like the ones that sailed the Hudson River in the 18th and 19th centuries. Uh, back in 1966, Pete Seeger, who lived in Beacon, um, decided to take action to bring attention to the absolutely disgusting state of the Hudson River. Um, at the time, the Hudson was full of raw sewage. You know, m even municipalities were just dumping everything into the river, toxic chemicals. Oh, I remember those days, the, uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, just pollution up and down. Um, wildlife was all but gone throughout the whole course of the river here in the Hudson Valley. Um, and Pete, thinking outside the box, had the idea to build this ship to bring people to the Hudson and hopefully they would be moved to preserve it. And he was absolutely right. You know, protests and sign holding and yelling and screaming have their place. But he took a different route, which I think nowadays you would call it creative marketing. But he brought some. He, he built something that brought people to it and helped change their mind. Um, the Clearwater itself is 106 feet long. It launched back in 1969. It's still sailing. It's now on the National Register of Historic Places. And they're still conducting science experiments and education programs. And you can buy tickets and go for a ride on the clear water through, uh, I know, at least the, the summer cool. and the fall. So it's still around. So it, one of many lasting legacies from uh, from Pete Seeger. 
I got to see him perform uh, maybe now about 20 years ago or so. It was mm-hmm. at the uh, what is it, the Waldorf Green Meadows School over in, uh, I think it's in Spring Valley. Or, oh, the, uh, I know what you're talking about, yeah. Yeah, and they had Chestnut a... Chestnut Ridge. Che- yeah, that's it, and thank you. And uh, yeah, it was a, like a folk festival there, and I was uh, there uh, representing another station that I worked for at the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... Um, and I saw him. He was walking in, and he 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 carried all his instruments with him. And he he was he was an older man then. Yeah, yeah. And he had you know his couple of guitars strapped around his you know over his shoulder and a banjo, and and he's just walking in, you know, like and I you know kind of walk. I was just walking past him. I looked, and I just kind of gave him a little mm-hmm. you know wave, and he waved back at me. And I'm like, there he, he's. You should have people doing this, you know, like rock yeah. star. Treatment. You should have your entourage. He with was you and he, he was such did. a down to earth guy. Yeah, yeah. No, you know, no pun intended, or you know, no, but, not at all. He yeah, was, he was very. He I was, was, I was being so, approachable. Yeah. so impressed that, like, no, I, I, I kind of said, "Do you need a hand?" He was like, "Nope, I got this." I'm like, <laughs> "Yeah, I think you've been doing this long enough. Yeah, He's you, got it down. You to do the have routine. this. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah definitely. It, definitely. It, it was one of those moments that I was like, "Oh, I never did get to see him perform, which is unfortunate, but." That's why you got to go when you can. Take the that, chances, that's, you know? That, I say that, you know, unfortunately, it's true. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, so the song Black and White, so that was the first recording. There were a bunch of different versions that were put out. Sammy Davis Jr. actually uh, put one out in 1971, which is a moderate hit, not so much. It was Three Dog Night when they put out their version in 1972 that actually made this song um, a number one hit. It hit number one in, 19, uh, in uh, September of 1972. So the song was almost 20 years old at that point, and it took that long to make a hit. So the Three Dog Night actually omits one of the verses there, uh, the one that says their robes were black, their heads were white, the schoolhouse doors were closed so tight, nine judges all set down their names to end the years and years of shame. I don't know if it was because that was like the most pointed kind of negative verse, or if they were trying to chop it down to that that three-minute target where I'd you need to be. I'd <laughs> probably say a little bit of both, and they yeah. probably picked the most... Uh... I won't say incendiary verse, but the most uh, provocative. Torquing, provocative. That's a good one. So, but yeah, the song is actually now three minutes and seventeen seconds, so it may and, very and well got, be. And they got it in under the. Uh, they got under, it under that under right around that three minute mark. They were still in the seventies. It was yeah. that three I, minute mark. I, yeah. The top no, I, I would say that it's a combination of both. You're and you're probably they, right, but it, it was a hit. So definitely was. So why don't we check it out? The number one version of Black and White. By Three Dog Night here on the Rock and Roll History Show.
Rock and Roll History Show here on HudsonRiverRadio.com. I'm Brian Horowitz, joined by the walking encyclopedia, Neil Richter. Hello, everybody. And today we're talking civil rights and rock and roll music history. I think they, uh, they crossed paths there uh, quite a bit, especially we, back in the... Uh, in the 60s, 50s, yeah. and 60s. Yeah. yeah, we're actually going to go back a little bit further on this one. We're going to go back to the 1930s when a New York City school teacher named Abel Mirapol wrote a poem he called Bitter Fruit. And this poem was inspired by a haunting photograph he had seen of two young black men who were hanging from a tree. They had been lynched. Uh, Bitter Fruit was first published in a 1937 edition of the New York Teachers Union newsletter. Mir Mirapol was an amateur musician, and then he later set that poem to music. A nightclub owner in New York City heard the song and passed it on to the legendary Billie Holiday, who then sang it in her show pretty much every night for months. Uh, Billie Holiday wanted to record Bitter Fruit, uh, but her record label, Columbia Records, wouldn't touch it because even though the song didn't specifically mention lynching, it was still way too provocative and political. However, a smaller company named Commodore Records agreed to record it under a new title called Strange Fruit. Uh, it never got significant airtime. Radio stations in the South absolutely just flat out refused to play it because of the topic. And stations in the North were afraid to stir up controversy, so they both kind of walked away from the song. But even without the support of radio, it did have good sheet music sales, which is how they made a lot of money back then. And the song struck a nerve with the public. It actually made it to number 16 on the Billboard chart back then, which was unheard of for a song that had no commercial support and no real radio That play. is pretty incredible. So it is. So it definitely, it certainly struck a nerve with everybody. Uh, the story behind Abel Mirapol himself is a little bit more complex. He was actually a communist, as were many New York City teachers at the time. Uh, keep in mind, this was the 1940s before World War II. It was before McCarthyism. He still wound up being called before a state committee investigating communism in public schools. This committee wanted to know if the American Communist Party had paid him to write the song, which they did not. Mirapol wound up leaving the Communist Party shortly thereafter, and he also quit teaching in 1945. Later in 1953, after World War II and at the beginning of, of uh, the Cold War, uh, Ethel and Julius Rosenberg were executed for espionage, leaving behind two young sons. Ethel and Julius Rosenberg were accused of passing secrets of the atomic bomb to the Soviet Union. Definitely a landmark case. Uh, so later that year at a Christmas party, believe it or not, Mirapol was introduced to the two young Rosenbergs, the two sons who were left behind. And within weeks, the two kids were living with him. And given that McCarthyism was now in full swing with blacklisting and all the problems with communism, it was a, a pretty courageous thing to do to give these two kids... A home. Uh, so Strange Fruit has been covered countless times. The most recent one that I could find was actually done by Annie Lennox back in 2014. And I think she did a really good job. So it is a, uh, it's really not an easy song to listen to. And you can see why it touched the nerves of a lot of people. So let's check out Annie Lennox's version of Strange Fruit on the Rock and Roll History Show. Southern trees bear a strange fruit Blood on the leaves and blood at the root Black bodies Thank you. 
version but you can see why radio stations will kind of walk away from that <laughs> wow yeah that that is a powerful rendition too but uh, if anybody could do it annie lennox annie lennox and billy holiday yeah well, several they, decades apart obviously but uh yeah there, there is no uh um what's the word i'm looking for that, that's straight down the middle <laughs> yeah <laughs> there yeah, is that, no there is no uh, covering up with that's not sugar-coated no no not at all so um but yeah again that, that was at a time when when sheet music would drive the sales of a lot of a lot of music, and they would take that into consideration when uh, compiling the Billboard charts. Mm-hmm. So not so much now. Now it's not even sales. Sales has fallen off. It's streaming. Yeah, so. it's a, it's a different world, but it it's a different world is. in that respect. But maybe not so much. Not so much in the topic of the song. Yeah, maybe not so much. I would agree. I would agree there. So we will move on. This episode is made possible by PwC. When unprecedented times are all the time. It's time to start walking the talk. Leaders like you turn to PwC to see and stay ahead. Upskill your workforce, use intelligent automation, and transform big ideas into breakthrough outcomes. Explore the human-led, tech-powered solutions that help you thrive. It's all part of the new equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. A little bit, we're going we're gonna to kind of flip it over a little bit. We're going to talk about a legendary guitarist, a guy named Don Peake. Are you familiar with Don? Uh, I've never Don? heard of, of Don. Um, he's, he's still around. He is a session musician, not so much anymore, but he's still playing live more now. I've um, probably heard him more than You heard have heard him play right. on many, many things. He's a legendary guitarist. Uh, he started playing when he was really young, and he actually landed his first gig in 1961 as the lead guitarist for the Everly Brothers. Not bad. Not a bad gig. Not When you're starting out as the lead guitarist, mm-hmm. not too bad, uh, just at the age of 21, right? Go take your music lessons. When your parents tell you to take music lessons, take music lessons. All right. He later became a member of the Wrecking Crew, the legendary Wrecking Crew, the group of studio musicians who played on just about everything, everything. for three decades, uh, uncredited usually. Uh, and he was also hired as a staff guitarist for Motown, which had to be one heck of a ride. I can only imagine oh, the stories he's got from that. So Don Peake played on every single one of the Jackson 5 songs that uh, became hits. He played for the Mamas and the Papas. He played for Smokey Robinson, the Commodores, John Lennon, Barry White, and many others. And one of his probably best-known compositions is this, the theme to Knight Rider. <laughs> Were you a Knight Rider fan? I was not, no. Yeah, I watched a couple. But... A shadowy flight into the dangerous world of a man who does not exist. I like the car. Michael Knight, a young loner on a crusade to champion the cause of the innocent, the helpless, the powerless, in a world of criminals who operate above the law. I'm assuming they were going for like an Orson Welles sounding kind of narration there. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I like the dramatic reading. Right? Oh, totally 80s.
So I haven't heard that in 30 years, and I don't think I need to hear that for another 30 years. <laughs> but still, hey, you know, you write a song that's the uh, theme song to a TV show. Oh, a hit TV you show. Got it that made. thing was huge. Yeah, you that got show it made. Was absolutely huge. As if he didn't already have it made. He a, did. You know, he did. That alone mm-hmm. would, would, would have you sitting pretty. Yes. Yeah. One hit, you know, the, the tongue in cheek joke from uh, especially back 60s, 70s is, is one hit. You can live comfortably for 20 years if you do it right. So if you have a hit every 20 years, you should be okay. That That's the music, you know, insider joke, tongue-in-cheek. If I start now, let me think. I won't if you start now, you'd be good. So back to Don Peak. <laughs> you do your math, we'll come back to this. So we're going to talk Don Peak in 1964 when he landed his absolute dream job on top of being in the Wrecking Crew, on top of playing for Motown and all the groups that we talked and that about. And that wasn't good enough. That wasn't good enough for Don Peak. His idol was Ray Charles, and he got hired to play in Ray Charles' band. Uh, now, Ray Charles' band, every member of the band was black at the time, and Don Peak was the first white band member. Nobody cared. He settled right in. He felt at home. He was thrilled. Uh, the band was rehearsing for a couple weeks. They did a few test shows in the Los Angeles area, and then it was time for them to hit the road and go out and make some money. Their first stop happened to be in Montgomery, Alabama. Now, about a year before this, in January, specifically on January 21st, 1963 to be exact, Alabama's newly elected governor, George Wallace, made his now infamous inaugural address that we're going to listen to. In the name of the greatest people that have ever trod this earth, I draw the line in the dust and toss the gauntlet before the feet of tyranny, and I say segregation now segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. Let us send this message back to Washington by our representatives who are here with us today, that from this day we are standing up, and the heel of tyranny does not fit the neck of an upright man, that we intend to take the offensive and carry our fight for freedom across this nation, Wielding the balance of power, we know we possess in the Southland that we, not the insipid block voters of some sections, will determine in the next election who shall sit in the White House of these United States. So you had a pro-segregation governor. And, and this now was 1963? 1963. January 21st, 1963. Sounded, sounded more recent, but that's... Mm. So... <laughs> So now you have the Ray Charles band, all black except for Don Peake, the one white guy, and uh, they're coming to Montgomery, Alabama with a pro-segregation governor. So somehow word had gotten around before they arrived that the Ray Charles band had one white musician in it. And at the time, Governor Wallace followed through on all the threats that he would made subsequent to that speech. Uh, he was okay, quote-unquote, with a black band playing to a black audience. That was acceptable. But there were not allowed to be any white people at this Ray Charles concert. They were not allowed to be in the audience, and they were not allowed to be in the band. He absolutely forbade any mixing of the races at the time. 1963. Believe that? That's crazy. So the tour bus pulled up to the gates at the venue in uh, Montgomery, and Alabama state troopers climbed aboard the bus, looking specifically for Don Peake. Now, Ray, who was obviously blind, uh, leaned over. He asked his tour manager, a guy named Jeff Brown, what was going on. Brown whispered back to Ray that they were looking for the white boy. Uh, Ray quickly whispered back to him, well, just tell him he's Spanish. Quick thinking. So everybody whispered towards the back of the bus, towards Don Peak. Uh, Don slumped down in his seat. He pulled a hat down over his eyes, pretended he was sleeping, and stayed quiet. And that day, luck was on his side. The troopers walked through the bus, turned around, got off the bus, and let them go on their way. So he lucked out. Uh, showtime was less than two hours away. So the band set up really quickly. Don Peak actually put on brown makeup that night in order to blend in a little bit better. He understandably declined to take any guitar solos that night. He wouldn't even stand up. He actually sat down so he would blend into the background for that show. And when the show was over, the band packed up and got out of Alabama as fast as they could. Wow. Can't imagine why. Wow. Right? To this day, uh, Don Peak, like I said, he's still playing. He still talks about attending that Ray Charles School of Music. And when he was first learning how to play guitar, one of the first songs that he really wanted to learn how to play was What Did I Say by Ray Charles. And not too many years later, he got to live his dream. He got to play What Did I Say with Ray Charles and his band on stage almost every night. So 
We'll check out a little Don Peak in the background with the Ray Charles Band.
Hi, this is Southside Johnny from the Asbury Jukes, and you're listening to the Rock and Roll History Show with Brian. This episode is made possible by PWC. A robot may not be coming for your job, but competitors are coming for your market share. At PwC, we pair the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge. Reimagine operations from the cloud, fuel innovation with responsible AI, and detect risks before they become headlines. That's human-led and tech-powered. It's all part of The New Equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. And thank you for joining us. I'm Brian Horowitz, joined here, as always, by the one and only, the master, Neil Richter. Hey, everybody. And today it's all about civil rights, civil rights and rock and roll. So we're going to pull one out of the, hmm, I never thought of it file, which I just started right now. We're going to go back to uh, the 1980s, which I can't, this song is 30 years old, which is already messing with my mind. Uh, <laughs> Imagine how I feel. Yeah. We're going to talk about Bruce Hornsby. Uh, Bruce Hornsby graduated with a degree in music from the University of Miami back in 1977, he moved to L.A. He wound up doing some session work, and he toured with Sheena Easton uh, back in 1984. He then moved back to his native Virginia and put together Bruce Hornsby in the range. He had become friends with Huey Lewis at the time. Another, Well, you know what? Huey's got hearing problems now. So I was going to say he's a good show to see, Huey Lewis, but now uh, he's not touring. He had to cancel all his shows. Oh, that's a he's shame. Having, yeah, that's... Um, same problem that Brian Johnson from ACDC was having. The the lower frequencies are all muffled, so mm-hmm. he can't yeah, hear himself on. So, well, it does happen, unfortunately. Huey Lewis I had seen a bunch of times. A good show. But Huey Lewis was a fan of Bruce Hornsby and went out of his way to help get uh, Bruce Hornsby in the range signed, signed by RCA. Their first single was their biggest. It's called The Way It Is. It topped the charts back in 1986, 31 years ago. Oh, my God. <clears throat> uh, musically, it was unusual for a song of the 1980s because the piano was the lead instrument, and uh, you didn't hear a whole lot of piano tunes in the 1980s. That was the time of the new drum machines and sequencing and samplers and electronic kind of stuff. Hair bands. Uh... Hair bands, a lot of Aquanet, a lot of Aquanet, that poor ozone layer. Yeah. yeah, but uh, yeah, so it was uh, one of the exceptions to the rule, and Bruce always plays an actual, real Steinway grand piano. So the way it is, the song refers specifically to the civil rights movement and racism, specifically the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which was signed into law by Lyndon Baines Johnson shortly after uh, President Kennedy was assassinated. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 legally ended sec- uh, segregation in public places, such as separate water fountains and seating in restaurants and all that kind of stuff. And it banned discrimination for employment based on race, religion, sex, and national origin. So very significant legislation. Now, uh, LBJ did a lot of good work, but some people, more people now know that uh, when the doors were closed, he was a little bit less filtered. I don't know That's if you're a good familiar, way to put it. Right? Yeah. So I thought we would take a little tangent and this is a recording that's become popular in, in the past couple of years. Uh, you know, by this time in the 60s, uh, they were recording all of the president's phone calls in the White House for historical purposes and record keeping and all that kind of stuff. He didn't complain about that, though. No. No, it was just routine. That's yeah. the way it was. They weren't made public. They no. were just recorded and archived. Uh, this one subsequently uh, became uh, publicized. It is LBJ ordering pants from his tailor. <laughs> And it's worth a listen. So let's check it out. Former President Lyndon Bain Johnson ordering pants from the White House. Hello. Hello. Uh, Mr. Hager? Yes, this is Joe Hager. Uh, Joe, uh, is your father the one that uh, makes uh, clothes? Yes, sir. We're all together. You all made me some real lightweight slacks. uh, uh, He just made up on his own, sent to me three or four months ago. It's a kind of a light brown and a light green, rather soft green and soft brown. Yes, now, I need about six pairs for summer wear. Yes, sir. I need about six pairs to wear around in the evening when I come in from work. Yes, and I can send you a pair. I want them a half an inch larger in the waist than they were before, except I want two or three inches of stuff left back in there so I can take them up. I vary 10 to 15 pounds a month. All right, so, uh, leave me at least two and a half, three inches in the back where I can let them out or take them up, and put it, make these a half inch bigger in the waist, make the pockets at least an inch longer. Money, My money and my knife and everything fall out. Wait just a Hello? Hello. Now, another thing that crutch down where your nuts hang is always a little too tight. 
So when you make them up, give me a inch that I can let out there uh, because they cut me. It's just like riding a, a wire fence. These are almost these are the best that I've had anywhere in the United States. But uh, uh, when I gain a little weight, they cut me under there. So leave me. Uh, you never do have much margin there. But see if you can't leave me about an inch from the, where the zipper ends uh, round uh, under my back to my bunghole. All right, then. So I can let it out there if I need to. Okay. Now, be sure you got the best zippers in them. These are good that I have. And uh, if you get those to me, I would sure be grateful. Uh, where would you like to spend, please? White House. Right. I just sure will appreciate this. I need it more than anything. And uh, now, you give this boy the address, because I'm running for a funeral, and give him address just how to dress these trousers. So we'll send them to you. And don't you, you get the measurements out of them and add a half an inch to the back, give us an inch to the pockets, and about an uh, inch underneath uh, so we can let them out. In other words, you like just a little more stride in the crotch. Yeah, that's right. Yes, sir. Okay, here he is. Glad you enjoyed the other. Okay, go ahead, please. Former President Lyndon Baines Johnson. Very colorful. Very <laughs> His colorful. finest hour, right? Who would have thought language. ordering custom pants could be so interesting? <laughs> <laughs> All right, but back to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which was, which was uh, uh, legit. It was a significant um, legislation that was enacted. Um, and we're talking specifically about Bruce Hornsby's song, um, The Way It Is. So there's a phrase in the song that goes, well, they passed a law in 64 to give those who ain't got a little more, but it only goes so far. Because the law, another's mind, when, <clears throat> let me try this again. Because the law, another's mind, when all it sees at the hiring time is the line on the color bar. So in other words, you know, the law is there, but now enforcing it is the problem. Because when you're face to face with somebody who's hiring you, they're looking at where you fall in the color spectrum versus what you're uh, capable of doing what your qualifications are what your right. qualifications are and whether you're you're right or not for the job um another verse uh, they say hey little boy you can't go where the others go because you don't look like they do say hey old man how can you stand to think that way did you really think about it before you made the rules nice thing once again right down the middle but it's surrounded by nice music so you don't necessarily get the meaning of it but uh yeah very specifically written about the civil rights act of 1964 and again, an unusual hit for uh, the 1980s because it was a piano. Piano was out front, so let's check out Bruce Hornsby in the range on the Rock and Roll History Show, HudsonRiverRadio.com.
Hornsby in the Range from 1986. So a number one hit written about the Civil Rights Act in 1964. So I think in general people caught on that it was about, you know, racism. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I remember that, when it when it was out. And, yeah, the, the message was, uh, you know, was pretty clear. Mm-hmm. You know? um, I don't know if that that time I knew that what exactly it was about, but I think the uh, the gist was, uh, mm-hmm. was surely uh, mm-hmm. apparent. He's still playing, too, uh, Bruce Hornsby. I, he's one I would I would go see. I haven't seen him yet, but uh, yeah, he went on, you know, after Bruce Hornsby and the Range went their separate ways, he toured heavily with the Grateful Dead. I was going to say, I think he uh, he joined with the Dead for a while. He did, yeah. He played with them up until uh, Jerry Garcia's death in 1995, and he actually wound up uh, inducting the Dead into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1994, and uh, people are actually surprised when they meet him because you wouldn't realize it, but he's six foot four, believe it or not. So, just one of those things you don't think about, but you go meet Bruce Hornsby and you have to look up. And Ms. Lorenzo from Let's Talk History would be very proud to know that six foot four is the same height of, as uh, Abraham Lincoln. I'm just throwing that in there for bonus points. I'm sure I can get him on a future I quiz. I think you, you'll, yeah, you'll, uh, extra credit for right? you on that so one. So, we got to yeah, keep track definitely. of that. We have to keep a chart, you know? So, I had mentioned that uh, he was friends with Huey Lewis, and also back in 1986 as a thank you. Bruce Hornsby wrote a song and gave it to Huey Lewis in the news, a song that went to number one in 1987. It was called Jacob's Ladder, which we'll play after the show. We don't have time to play it during the show. Well, but one good turn. Absolutely. another. You know what? When you're a musician, that's the ultimate thank you. It's like a mixtape from the 80s, you know? You need mixtapes for your friends. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you're yeah. just taking it up a level or two, you know? So we're going to end today's uh, show on civil rights with the legendary Sam Cooke. Uh, Sam Cooke had his first major hit back in 1957 with the single You Send Me, which you don't realize. Everybody knows the words. You could sing along with it. You Send Me spent three weeks at number one on the Billboard pop charts, but Sam had already had a lot of experience under his belt as a gospel singer, especially as the lead singer for a gospel group called The Soul Stirrers. The Soul Stirrers helped bridge the gap between gospel and early rock and roll for a lot of young fans, and Sam Cooke went on to have 30 singles reached the top 40 charts between 1957 and 1964, which is incredible. 30 top songs. So if you can live for 20 years off of one, he could live, in theory, for 600 years and be fine. Unfortunately, that, that wouldn't wouldn't happen. That did not happen, and we'll get to that in a minute. So <laughs> <laughs> I figured we would. Yeah. Sam Cooke uh, was born in 1931 in Mississippi. He was obviously African-American and experienced the hardships of segregation firsthand. In 1963, he was inspired to write his hit, A Change Is Gonna Come, after being moved by Bob Dylan's Blown in the Wind, one of the most influential songs pretty much ever written. He was also influenced by a group of college students who were doing a civil rights demonstration in Durham, North Carolina, and he got to meet them after doing a show there. Sam himself had also been arrested after committing the crime of attempting to register at a segregated whites-only Holiday Inn Hotel in Shreveport, Louisiana. So he knew what he was talking about. He had experienced uh, racism firsthand. Unfortunately, on December 11th in 1964, Sam Cooke was fatally shot by a female hotel manager in Los Angeles. The courts at the time found that Cooke was intoxicated and literally and physically out of control and that the hotel manager legitimately feared for her life at the time. The shooting was ruled a justifiable homicide, but since that time, a lot of conspiracy theories have come about, and the circumstances have been in dispute by certain groups of people. 
who think that the investigation was unfair. Um, nothing really has come of that since, other than other theories have been put out there. Well, that he was he had was potentially and had become a very powerful uh, player in the uh, in the music business, mm-hmm. and uh, I think that as the conspiracy theory goes, that uh, it threatened a lot of people that a black man w- would have that much power. Sure, and um, maybe some people didn't want that to happen and that's the uh, incident where he was uh, was shot was a setup mm-hmm. I, I mean, Th- that's you know what? the theory I'm not I'm not saying one way or another yeah, I don't yeah. know I wasn't there well, the, but that's the uh, that um, the problem with it, it was it was the fact that you, you talk about uh, you know the 20 years uh, living off one single he owned I think all the the rights to his songs um, which was at that time unheard of for any artist, really. Right. right. So he was he was really becoming a mogul, mm-hmm. you know. In in uh, yeah, he was a smart man. He knew what he was doing. Yeah, and I, I think that that's where the theories, uh, the conspiracy theories, come in. That um, the problem with the conspiracy theories is you can't necessarily disprove them. So it seems kind no. of far fetched to get a hotel manager to be involved with. It, it would take. Yeah, you know? there's a lot going on. Yeah, I'm just yeah. saying that. Um, no, you're right, and yeah. that's one of several. Theories. I mean, we could spend a whole show discussing. Yeah, no, the not conspiracies that I, behind not it. that I subscribe to it one way or another. I'm just right. saying that was the, uh, right. the the thinking of some people who think that it was a setup. Mm-hmm. But that is why, because he was such a uh, you know a powerful guy in the music business. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, there you go. It, yeah, it would be interesting to have seen what you know would have happened had he lived. True, that is true. Very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so at the time, a change is going to come. It was only a moderate hit for Cook, but the message and the legacy uh, still carry on. It's popularity. It's one of those songs where it got more popular as time went on. Um, the song was actually selected for preservation in the Library of Congress in 2007, which that doesn't happen very often. Sam Cook was also inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a charter member back in 1986. So we're going to end today's show on civil rights with the legendary Sam Cook, and a change is going to come. On HudsonRiverRadio.com.
And there we go. We have skimmed the surface of civil rights and rock and roll. So much more we could do. Oh, yeah. Well. And the conspiracy theories. We, we should delve into that a little bit more. There's a lot of interesting topics. There are. Well, that's the idea. Something that's, a little bit different every week, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's it. That's it. So we are going to wrap up this week's Rock and Roll History Show. Thanks again for joining us. Don't forget to follow us on all the various social media, especially Facebook. You can follow us at Facebook.com slash The Rock and Roll History Show. And at Facebook.com slash Hudson River Radio. Happy one-year anniversary to us. Yay! Um, the Rock and Roll History Show is researched and written by Neil Briscoe and by myself. Our closing theme is courtesy of the other Joe Durso of Garnival, New York. I'm Brian Horowitz, joined again by the one and only Neil Richter. And hopefully we'll see you again next week, next Friday at 6 p.m. Yes. For the Rock and Roll History Show right here on HudsonRiverRadio.com. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. Okay, bye-bye. Woohoo! Streaming live from Stony Point, this is HudsonRiverRadio.com, your local Rockland County station. This episode is made possible by PwC. It's getting hot out here. Moving the mercury can help move your business. PwC helps turn sustainability theory into real-world action. Reduce your carbon footprint while increasing transparency in net-zero commitments. Start with reporting to identify your climate risks and reinvent your business. Create a more sustainable business and a stronger planet. It's all part of The New Equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com.